Welcome to the Valley Beit Midrash podcast, a program of Valley Beit Midrash, a global center of learning and action. We're bringing you the best in diverse, pluralistic Jewish wisdom, all with the goal of improving lives in our global community. I'm Rabbi Shmuley Yanklowitz. Let's get started. Shalom, friends. I'm so happy you're here. Welcome, welcome to number 40 of Debate 40. Debate 40. Um, I am glad you have uh, made it with us. So thank you for being here. And perhaps, perhaps Hillel and Shammai didn't make your blood boil. Perhaps whether humor is important or not didn't make your blood boil. Perhaps some of our other debates didn't. But I promise to end with a bang because Israel, more than anything else, will make our blood boil based upon our own our own leaning amidst the debates. And I wanna look at this question today, not just from a contemporary perspective, but also from a historical perspective, as we shall see. But let's start with a poll. Let's start with a poll to see where everyone is at today. I believe that the best future involves A, a two-state solution, B, a one-state solution, three, a confederation, or four, keeping the status quo. I'm not talking about what you think we should do right now, but where we ultimately want to get to. Okay, if you want to cast your vote, ultimately might mean a month from now, it might mean 30 years from now, where should we be ultimately in this great debate of the future of Jewish sovereignty? Okay, let's see our results here. I think people probably could vote quickly on this one. Okay, very interesting. 60% say a two-state solution. No one votes for a one-state solution. 40% voted for confederation. And no one voted for status quo. Very interesting. Very, very interesting. Okay, friends, here we go. So this, this session is going to be framed as no state, one state, or two states. Now, all of those need to be unpacked because they're very heavy phrases. And it's also being phrased as Herzl versus Wise. That's the, um, that's the, that's the historical dimension. And Art Green versus Beinart, which is a very contemporary dimension because Art Green only in this last year wrote a letter um, of critique to Beinart. So here we go. Friends, it may seem obvious to us today that Orthodox Jews would have been pro-Zionist 100 years ago, but that was far from true. It may also seem obvious that reformed Jews would have been pro-Zionist 100 years ago, but that also was far from true. 
the bulk of the Zionists in the late 19th and 20th centuries were found among secular Jews, those who wouldn't identify either as Reformed Jews or as Orthodox Jews. We know about Theodore Herzl's famous 1897 address in Basel, Switzerland. But do we know about Rabbi Stephen S. Wise's opposition to it? At the 1897 Reform Rabbinic Conference, Wise supported a resolution that emphatically denounced Zionism, resolved that we totally disapprove of any attempt for the establishment of a Jewish state. Could you imagine the head of Reform Judaism saying that today? Such attempts show a misunderstanding of Israel's mission. We affirm that the object of Judaism is not political nor national, but spiritual. <laughs> wow. Further, in the famous Pittsburgh Platform of 1875, which was considered the first significant statement of the American reform movement, we find these unequivocal words. We consider ourselves no longer a nation, but a religious community, and therefore expect neither a return to Palestine nor the restoration of any laws concerning the Jewish state. We are no longer Am Yisrael in the sense of a nation of Israel. We are Kehilat Yisrael. We are a community. We are a microcosm, not part of the nation states. The American reform movement wanted to make clear that there were no dual loyalties. We are American. We are bought in just like all immigrant groups. Immigrant groups are are insecure about their status. Now, if you look fundamentally immigrant, if you're Chinese, right, you can't escape it. If you're African, you can't escape it, right? Um, if you're Indian, you can't escape it. But if you're a white Jew, you try to escape it. You try to escape it in the late 19th century to say, I'm an American. Don't call me Polish. Don't call me Ukrainian. Don't call me um, uh, Lithuanian. You know, I am, I am fully here and don't think that I'm about a second state, right? If I'm Indian, you might think I'm, I'm, half, I'm half committed in my foreign policy to, to my family in India. If I'm Chinese, you might think the Chinese policy is sensitive for me. Don't worry, I'm a Jew and I'm American, right? We were to be fully American and seeking America as our home. Jewish nationalism in their view would compromise such a commitment. We can't be Jewish nationalists. We can only be Jewish American. For the Orthodox, now pivoting from the reform to the Orthodox, for the Orthodox, the opposition was also there, but very different. A future Jewish state they agreed needed to be built by Torah Jews, not by secular Jews. And thus it would need to wait until the Messianic era. We should focus instead on learning Torah and observing the mitzvot and not be distracted by state building. State building is what secular folks do, right? Um, we need to be focused on our religious priorities, they argue. Fast forward to the mid 20th century, the years leading up to and following 1948, and Orthodox Jews, at least the more modern ones, tend to be some of the most fervent Zionists. Many Orthodox synagogues in America recite the prayer for the welfare of the state of Israel on Shabbat morning. Many synagogues and schools celebrate Yom Ha'atzma'ut, Israel's Independence Day, and they sing Hatikva at functions such as their annual dinner. And in Israel, there are many yeshivot hezder, yeshiva programs that combine the study of Torah and serving in the IDF. 
There is even a division of the army called Nachal Haredi for young men who hail from a more ultra-Orthodox background, who choose instead of sitting in yeshiva to, um, to arm themselves and serve in the army. The story in the reform movement is a bit more complicated as the movement has moved left on its relationship to Israel. The reform movement at large still is by and large of a Zionist orientation, but far more critical of the enterprise than it was only a decade ago, not to mention a few decades ago. It might seem clear that the Zionist agenda and goal was achieved. After all, there's a Jewish state. Yet the debates rage on regarding the conflict. Number one, should we maintain status quo and deny Palestinian nationalism? Number two, should we work towards a two-state solution where Israeli Jews and Palestinians can, for the most part, live separately, each with their own sovereignty? Number three, should we try to build one state living together and harmony and co-governing? Number four, is there a middle ground with a confederation where we can co-govern and cooperate with one land, but with two states on that one land? Peter Beinart was known as a leading articulator for, um, for liberal Zionism for some years. We've had him here at BBM in the past. He's of South African origin. You wouldn't know it about him, but he prays at a progressive Orthodox synagogue. Um, uh, in Manhattan, and he was a journalist. He were, he's a professor at CUNY. Recently, however, he pivoted from being a two-state visionary to a one-state visionary. Rabbi Dr. Art Green, who's a, an, a, one of the greatest Jewish uh, living theologians today, he teaches at the non-denominational Hebrew College in Boston. He's a scholar of Hasidus, of, of, of Hasidism, he, as a, as a liberal Jew and as a, um, as a liberal Zionist, remains committed to a two-state solution and responds publicly to Beinart. Green agrees with many of Beinart's critiques, but ultimately rejects his abandonment of the two-state solution. Green offers three primary critiques of Beinart's one-state solution. Number one, he argues Jews need a refuge. He's, he writes, I do not believe that a binational state shared with Arabs still wounded by the real suffering of their own refugees could be counted on to be there when Jews need it. Number two, Jews need defense. He writes, I fully agree with the critique of the Israeli army's conduct towards civilians in the West Bank. And I am sympathetic to some of the claims about ex excesses in Gaza. I am appalled by the government's ongoing whitewash of obvious violations of human rights by members of the Israeli army. But I am not ready to give up on the country's vital need and right to defend itself. Number three in his response, the value of Jewish culture. The third point, the culture of Israel is personally just as vital to me. What has been created thanks to the Jewish state, including its financial support, in the realms of Hebrew literature, Jewish scholarship, fine arts, and lots more, has enriched and transformed Jewish life in a myriad ways. This cultural aspect of Zionism, to which we are both committed, 
has been an incredible success. I simply do not believe that a Palestinian minister of culture in the single state you propose would have the same commitment to it. Okay, friends, so this is very different than, than our debate of Yitz Greenberg versus Mayor Kahana that we looked at quite a while ago. This would be very different than looking at J Street versus APAC, very different than looking at a, a left a left-wing Zionist and a right-wing Zionist. Because, why is it different? Because those Jews aren't talking to each other anymore, right? Those who support Stand With Us and APAC are not talking to the same Jews who are a part of, of, of left-wing Zionist movements or left-wing uh, uh, critique of, of Zionist movements. What's interesting is um, centrist uh, Zionists are talking with right-wing Zionists right-wing Zionists are talking with far right-wing Zionists and left-wing Zionists are talking with far left-wing Zionists. And that's where the debates lie. They happen within um, the, the, the small differences within their own camps. So here, although it's interesting to look at like how right-wing Zionists in Israel debate with extremist right-wing Zionists in Israel, it's also interesting to look at how left-wing Zionists talk with more extreme. And here, you know, although Beinart is a friend, um, uh, even though I disagree with him on this, and Bynot is, is an important scholar, um, um, I think that I would, I would label Bynot is in the extreme camp at this point in terms of his uh, alignments. And Green is willing to say that also. To some, they would consider Green, you know, um, also ha having gone, gone, gone too far in, in his critiques. Nonetheless, we see an important move that Green reminds us that our main responsibility is not to critique the other camp, for Democrats to critique Republicans, or Republicans to critique Democrats, or Jews to critique Muslims, or Muslims to critique Jews, right? The, our job is to challenge within our own camp. That's where we have the most power of influence, right? If I'm a reformed Jew, I don't go scream at the Orthodox. I, 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 I agitate other reformed Jews. If I'm an Orthodox Jew, I don't go yell about the reform. I go agitate with the problems in the Orthodox camp. Our power to create change is within our own camp. And Green understands that. And Green is willing to say, you know what, as a left-wing Zionist, I'm willing to call out Beinart publicly, even though he's a friend and colleague, because he goes too far. He's willing to do that. And it's an important model that one type of debate we look at in our 40 debates is debating people on the other side of the aisle, right? And we know they're not listening. We're almost talking to ourselves. But the other type of debate is when we debate people close to home, close to home in ways that take, it takes more courage because we're willing to call out people in our own camp. I know some people are not willing to do it. Oh, I'm gonna lose allies. I'm gonna lose friends. I'm gonna lose funders. I'm gonna lose, I'm gonna lose this contact. Um, uh, but uh, Green reminds us that it, uh, of how important exactly it is. He ultimately, oh, I just threw my back out. I've got to sit down, sorry. Don't worry about me. I'm just gonna move. <laughs> Am I bouncing up and down? I'm getting old, 40 debates. I want to remind you that, that we chose 40 debates because I turned 40 this year. And to some of you, you might be like, ah, 40, you little picture, you know? But to me, I'm like, oh, 40, I throw my back out every every two weeks now. So I try not to talk about it because I don't want to burden people with my back. So anyways, bracket all that, sorry. Green ultimately supports the founding of a confederation after the establishment of two states. Of course, all of this will take time, but the ulti ultimately the goal cannot be to live without walls, but to learn to partner, cooperate and coexist even while each separate state can advance its own religious and cultural goals. For other Jews today, any talk of peace, be it one state, 
two states or confederation is only naive. There are no peace partners, they would argue. So all we can practically do for now is maintain status quo. But this view also poses an extreme danger to Jews as number one, Israel may lose its claim to democracy if it controls the Palestinian population. Number two, anti-Israel sentiment around the world may continue to rise at an even more rapid rate than currently so. And number three, many threats in the region continue to exist and it's unclear that Israel can eternally beat them off. I mean, we can win some wars, but can we win every war for decades to come? And by the way, I'm sure we're all playing out in our head. If World War III happens right now with Russia invading Ukraine and China backs Russia, the, 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 one of the greatest world superpowers, you know who's third in line? Iran, Russia, China, and Iran, right? In this World War III. And what does that mean for the state of Israel at the, you know, right over there in that region? ultimately. So we're, we are in scary territory right now. Um, so the temperature must be lowered. We must never abandon hope for peace. We must also never abandon our commitment to Jewish security at the same time. Now for Herzl, Jews needed a state. For Wise, remember Wise, head of the reform movement, late 19th century, Jews did not need a state. For secular pioneers, Jews needed a state. For many, for many among the Orthodox, Jews did not. Of course, Rav Cook in Israel and Rav Soloveitchik in America, as well as other pre-state Israel Orthodox rabbis, were early founders of religious Zionism. Their desire to merge their religious worldview with their political worldview. While Rav Cook held a passion for religious Zionism, he also was a visionary for peace. But he wrote in, um, actually, um, here it's explained in Mirsky's great book here. The following spring, he wrote in support of Zionist land purchases. Here's what Rob Cook said. As we return to capture our land, he wrote. Now he doesn't, he doesn't mean capture here in a, in a conquest sense. He's, he means it in a religious sense of reclaiming. We do not do so, we do so not by might or the sword, but the path of peace paying in full for every footstep of our land, even if our right to the earth of our holy land never lapsed, whether wrested from Israel by cash or by the sword. We want to fulfill the mitzvah of love thy neighbor, not only toward individuals, but also toward nations, so that none of the Gentile nations will bear any claim or resentment against us. So um, that's very interesting. Just like Avraham, even though he's given free rights to the burial, he wants to pay for the burial land. So too, Rob Cook says, if there's any land that's not ours, we need to buy it. We need to pay for it. We can't just con conquer it. And we need to be concerned while we're concerned with Jewish survival, that we're also concerned with doing what's ethical and the perception of Gentiles towards us. Now you might say, ah, come on, Rob Cook, you're writing, you're writing 20 years before the Shoah. After the Holocaust, it'll be a different conversation when the Arabs join the Nazis and trying to kill every Jew they can in the land. So it doesn't change. Nonetheless, nonetheless, of course, times do change. Nonetheless, um, um, Rub Cook uh, uh, offers something that continues to be a source of inspiration to those in the religious Zionist camp that understand the goal is not only security and might, but also peace and ethics. So in addition to the non-Zionists, non 
there are also the anti-Zionist Jews. And you're probably where the anti-Zionist Jews are diverse. We think of these as all being very young, far left American Jews, right? You can think of this like 22 year old who just got out of college, who's joining, you know, uh, if not now movement, but they can be found among the ultra-Orthodox as well. The Naturi Karta, you've probably heard of. The, the, this sect of Satmar is just one example. Uh, a reminder, so the Satmar, the Satmar Yidin, uh, if you go back a slide just before we go there, the Satmar Yidin are the largest group of Hasidim in America. They're also, according to American uh, demographers, the poorest group in America. You might have thought it was this Mexican group or this black group or Native Americans. The demographics show the poorest group in America are the Satmar Hasidic Jews, which is fascinating, right? Uh, it's also fascinating to the anti-Semitic trope that all Jews are, are, are wealthy, that the, the Satmar Hasidim live in destitute poverty. And some people want to blame them for it. Of course, we should never blame people in poverty, but they tend to have 10 kids. Maybe they had eight kids if they couldn't get pop 10 out. Maybe they got 15 out if they started at 19 and they made sure to have one every year. I mean, did everything they could around fertility, right? Some of them have baseball teams, right? They got nine against nine on the baseball field, right? <laughs> um, they have a good time over there, the Satmar. Unfortunately, um, I would never compare them to the Taliban in any way, but they do have very, very strict laws around, around um, women in society. And, and some of the women are not even allowed to get driver's licenses. Um, they can't even, are not even allowed to drive or even get degrees where they can help to support the family. They need to just be home taking care of the 15 kids. I mean, it, it is a big job. But so anyways, um, it, anyways, we don't have to get into that whole conversation. But anyways, within Zatmer, there's a group called the Turikarta and the, the Turikarta flies to Iran to meet with the presidents of, and, the, and, the, and the Ayatollah of Iran to destroy Israel. They want Israel bombed. They want to bomb Israel, right? The Turikarta. They want, they want it dead. They, they think it's a, a heretical thing that we have the state of Israel. And so whenever we think of the, of the, young, of, of the young secular Jew who's anti-Israel out in the streets um, marching for Hamas or, or something similar, we should also keep in mind that Tari Karta is also part of it. Now here's a little joke that's not funny. It's kind of like an inside, inside joke, uh, you know, because we're not, because we learned last week, we're not allowed to be funny as Jews. We gotta be very serious. <laughs> uh, that, that, that actually wasn't the conclusion at all. But um, <laughs> you, you get the point. So Rav Yitzchak Zev, he was known as Velvel, Halevi Soloveitchik of the Brisk movement. Brisk was an interesting, very, very interesting movement. He lived in Yerushalayim. He once heard a member of Naturi Karta curse the state of Israel, to which he responded, responded, this man is a Zionist. How so? In Poland or in Russia, would he thus curse the authorities? Would he act like this in America? He's gonna curse the government? Since he acts differently here, he must necessarily find a different essence in the Jewish state, a unique experience. He must therefore be a Zionist. So, <laughs> so Rav Yitzchak Zev Belvul, Halevi Soloveitchik, says every Jew in, in the old country was terrified of critiquing the government. Um, and, um, um, and so you would never do it. You'd get killed. And so the fact that Natori Karta is willing to critique Israel so harshly means they understand this enterprise is fundamentally different. By the way, uh, we should all be praying for Zelensky, President Zelensky. Uh, as you know, he's, he's a Jew. Zelensky is a Jew. He's the president of Ukraine. He must be shaking in his boots right now. He's in a terrifying situation. 
uh, if you can read about his uh, background, I mean, if you just type in Jewish background, Zelensky, you can read a little bit about it. By the way, going back to Cherem, remember Cherem? Uh, we talked about the Cherem of Spinoza, how Spinoza was banned by the Amsterdam rabbis. Um, you know who was also banned over there was Trotsky. The, the rabbis of Odessa put a ban on Trotsky, um, which is very interesting when they ban a Jew uh, uh, like this, but also the Nature Karta, the Chabad movement and the Satmar movement put an official harem on Nature Karta, which is fascinating because Nature Karta is still technically a part of Satmar, but they put a harem on the whole Nature Karta. And what's interesting about this is you might think of harem as being religious. Oh, you deny God, harem. You deny Torah, harem. You deny Halacha, harem, right? But, but here, Kherim has a political dimension in addition to a religious dimension, right? Trotsky, a tra for, as a Trotskyite, I mean, you know, I mean, Trotsky was, uh, I mean, okay, we're not getting into Trotsky right now, but, but it's a pretty political dimension. And so too, not only Trotsky, as we get to the Turiakarta, religiously, they're the same as Satmar, but on the political dimension, there's a big difference. Okay, I'm getting to my last, uh, my last page here, then we're going to open it up because I'm sure we all have a lot to say. Another group of anti-Zionists among the Orthodox today are the fringe hilltop youth settlers engaged in acts of terror. And I don't use act, the, that phrase acts of terror lightly. Um, to accuse a Jew of being a terrorist is a very, very serious accusation, but there's nothing, there, 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 it's, it's completely accurate when someone engages in acts of violence against random um, uh, innocent, uh, populations who are planting olive trees and the like. Um, it is a tiny fringe movement, unlike a Hamas terrorist movement. Nonetheless, as Jews, we need to be honest about it. And the Hilltop youth settlers, re re they reportedly want to see the end of the state of Israel replaced by a kingdom of Israel. You might've thought they're hyper-Zionists, right? They're hyper-Zionists, they live in settlements and they're willing to fight for settlements and they're willing to bypass the IDF to engage in acts of terror. But actually they don't want Medinat Israel. They want Malchut. They want a kingdom of Israel. They want Mashiach now and they want Melech HaMashiach, just like Chabad wants Melech HaMashiach. The king, they want a king to return right now. But the path to peace in my view is achieved through bridge building wherever possible and not bridge building, not throwing rocks and not burning down homes and vigilante justice. Denying gas as a heat source would not be a valid security measure, but just outright discrimination and racism. Statements like this remind me that even though I'm fervently religious and adamantly Zionist, I struggle more and more to identify with the camp of religious Zionists as they stand, as long as some in that camp move towards extremes. I will always be religious and I will always be Zionist, but I don't know that I'll always affiliate with the political faction of religious Zionism. Zionism is not an ideological commitment to a current reality, but an aspiring dream, a protest calling for a national and global moral revolution. We need partners who share our dreams. I am, I am, speaking personally again, a proud and passionate Zionist for many reasons. But the main reason is because I believe we finally have the holy opportunity to bring the Torah's most cherished ethical values to fruition 
through, throughout the vehicle of a state. When Israel continues to offer humanitarian relief around the world, I believe we're taking yet another step to bring this spiritual vision to actualization. When Israel can enable millions of Jews to safely live within its borders and to learn Torah and Jewish values, it is a dream from past millennia. And so for me, there are so many different lenses through which to experience Israel. A biblical homeland, a post-Holocaust refuge, a religious Zionist ideology, a Jewish social justice opportunity, a playing field to foster Jewish peoplehood and Jewish culture, a personal place where my family and friends and teachers live, a spiritual playground, a home for my own personal religious narrative, a messianic yearning, an idea of political debate. And it is hard to have a monolithic relationship to a place that is so rich and complicated as if the entirety can be viewed through one lens. It'd be like being an American solely through one political lens. What about your friends in America? What about the park you go to? What about the food you eat? We're American, for those of us American, Canadian, wherever we live, like we are a part of our countries in such multifaceted ways, not one way. There is no debate more sensitive and more fury driven among Jews today than the debates around Israel. More passionate than, than debating God, halakha, denominations, ethics, or even secular politics, it is the debates surrounding Israel that make every Jew's blood boil. How can we lower the temperature? How can we talk, debate, and learn once again? We can find a way to do so, and we must find a way to do so. And so friends, I wanted to close our debate series with this topic because I think I'm interested in the micro, which is the content of this debate, but also the macro of how do Jews once again, across the diversity of the Jewish people, learn to once again engage fruitfully in this conversation. Okay, Lauren, um, as usual, I see your hand up. I'm a kid in school who would never raise her hand. So <laughs> I, it, living in Israel changed me. Um, <laughs> a, a few things. Um, one, a lot of people don't know, and if my father hadn't been in one, I wouldn't have known. There were modern Zionist Hebrew teaching schools in Eastern Europe before the war. My father went to one called Hagimnasium HaYehudi in, um, in Krakow. And all his friends learned to speak Ivrit in, in, um, in, in Poland or in you know, parts of Russia. It's amazing. So that's not known. Um, the other thing, when, when I lived in Israel, I lived in Israel several times, but could never hack it long term. When, when I lived in Israel in the 80s, so I, I grew up in the Dati Umi community. I went to, you know, a, a religious Zionist school and I, I belonged to B'nai Akiva and the Mizrahi movement were actually the moderates and they were the ones who were the buffer between the ultra-Orthodox, who weren't as Meshiggah back then, and, and the secularists and things changed and they changed for the worse. And I can't, although I see myself as a Zionist for religious reasons and nationalist reasons, I don't identify with the Dati Lumi community anymore. Um, the other thing that I wanna say, I attended a very, very interesting lecture. Well, a Q and A with David Horowitz of Times of Israel and Natan Sharansky when I was still living in Yerushalayim. And um, Natan Sharansky brought out a very good point. 
And he said, like, Oslo was the downfall. Oslo was, you know, the worst thing because there had started to be already um, an indigenous group of people who on the Palestinian side who may have eventually made some kind of peace to, I don't think I'm related to Sam Black, but I don't know. Um, our, our, um, I lost my thought with Sam Blatt. Oh yeah, that, that would have made some kind of peace. And I know when I lived there in the mid eighties, so I worked in a, a hospital for long-term geriatric patients and we had Arab nurses from over the Western, you know, from over in Shamron. I lived in, in uh, Patakh Tikva and, and we had Russian nurses and we had um, Israeli born nurses, they got along and they would visit each other on days off. And I remember going shopping to Jericho. So Oslo was the death now. However, and I know I'm going on long, so I'll cut it short. I do believe in a two state solution. Eventually at the moment, I do not believe there's any partner for peace. I think the way to go is Mika Goodman's idea in the meanwhile to lessen the pressure on the Palestinians. But I certainly pray that one day we have a two-state solution and pay peace for, for the people of Israel. Good, Lauren. Lauren, thank you for sharing your personal stories and, and your view on the on the future state here. I appreciate it. Yes, hi, Rabbi Biller. Hey, how are you? Hi, great. How um, are you? Good, good. I'm glad to be on. Um, three, three little bits. Um, one, we were talking about the three different movements and their early relationship to Zionism. So my understanding is that the reform movement uses the word temple for synagogue as a way to say we're, you know, we're no longer looking at Jerusalem. You know, it's kind of like thumbing their nose at the temple in Jerusalem. You know, I'm a French, I'm French, I'm Austrian. So of course they weren't interested in Zionism. So that, that, that was my first thought um, originally. Second thought, I went to Orthodox Day School and I remember I was about 10, something came up about Golda Meir and, and, uh, and some other people, and I said, oh, they built a country. And my teacher just lambasted lamb 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 me in front of everybody. He said, God built a country, not Israeli politicians. And that, like, I was really just seared in front of So I remember that. And here's a great bit of JTS mythology that I've never heard denied, that in 48, the students at the Jewish Theological, the conservative movement, wanted to mark the Declaration of Independence of the state in some way. And the administration refused because the conservative movement wasn't officially supporting a Zionist state. And to this day, it's not known who, but the bell tower in the cathedral, one block west on, on River, Riverside, the Riverside Cathedral, played Hatikva during the graduation ceremonies at JTS. And nobody knows who made it happen, how it happened. So that's part of the, like the students pushing a Zionist kind of agenda when the administration wouldn't. Debarty. You know, do, oh, um, Rabbi Lerner, are you a graduate of JTS? I'm fascinated because uh, it was only in late 48 that Lieberman came to the seminary. So it would be hard to figure out who would be in charge, probably Finkelstein was at that point completely in charge. Those were the Finkelstein years. And uh, I don't recall the students ever having that kind of uh, power. <laughs> so Rabbi, well, look, it, you're, you're it wasn't really- JTS, right? Excuse me? You're a musmach of JTS? Yes, yes, oh, okay. yes, I'm sorry. 
I said rather. It, it wasn't really power. They had to get secretly the church to ring out the song. It wasn't power. They had no power, JTS, but they did this secret thing. It's a great question to ask and great Jewish uh, and seminary trivia. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> okay, good. So now we all have some homework. We can go. We talked a little bit about the early Orthodox rejection of Zionism. We talked a lot about the early reform, also rejection of Zionism. Uh, and now we can look back at the early conservative, capital C, conservative roots around Zionism and when that evolution happens. Mm -hmm. And Rabbi Biller tells an interesting story of the first Hatikva played at a graduation. And you're mm -hmm. absolutely right that, um, that the temple in the reform movement was called temple um, to replace the, the need for a temple. Um, we, we want to be decentralized. We want to be a diaspora. We want to, we don't want a return. There's no religious yearning for return. What were you going to say? I said, as a Canadian Jew, I still like tremble when I hear Jews saying I'm going to temple. It's like so foreign to me because, uh, you know, unless it's a reform temple, but it, it just uh, jars me every time I hear it. Anyway, that's enough. Thank you. Thank you so much. Yeah, hi, Cheryl. Hi. Um, my, my question slash comment is just the most basic and simple, well, probably not simple, otherwise I wouldn't really be asking it, but this whole political business about the support of Trump, for example, that people don't care anything about anything else, Jews, particularly, don't care about anything else except that he supported Israel. And so that they, why do, why do, if we are American Jews, and that was always the question in the 70s, we would have these young leadership development um, uh, programs through the Jewish Federation. And we would talk about, are we Jewish Americans or American Jews? You know, we would always talk about that. But this has been, this is so incredibly hot button now. I mean, it started and it's it's really kind of came to the head in, in the 2016, but it's, it's maintained that, that it doesn't matter what else happens, what is, what may be policies that are good or not good for the country, people are willing to throw, just dismiss everything because this person regardless of whether it's Trump or somebody else aligned with that same feeling is supportive of Israel. So forget everything else, forget the American question, you know, problems that we have here in America, problems that, you know, that people are going through, everything is tossed out the window. And I'm just so, I mean, it's like you said, it's broken up, it's broken up friendships it's, and relationships and even within families, I think. So I'm just curious about what you feel to say about that. Yeah, Cheryl, thank you so much for flagging that. It, it's such a uh, it's such a, a heavy uh, issue on many of our hearts, I know, and it's so complicated. Um, as you probably know, there's a local candidate who recently accepted an endorsement from a from a a, a local politician who is a, a white supremacist, and he defended it by saying uh, uh, the white supremacist is pro-Israel. Um, and uh, I, I almost spoke out about it, and uh, and ultimately did not. <laughs> <laughs> yes. For, yeah, as you know. Um, and um, uh, and so this is not uh, this is unfortunately not rare. Now I think there is there's um, a there's one interpretation of what they're doing doing there, uh, or a few interpretations. One is that they're simply selfish and want their own power. 
The other view is that they simply don't care about the other groups marginalized or hurt. They just don't care or, or that they agree with it. Um, the, the, mo the most charitable of you there would be that they are, and, and here I'm not speaking of an individual in particular, they are just so scared that they are so scared of Israel not having the support it needs that they are willing to throw anything and anyone under the bus to maintain the type of support they think it needs. That would be the most charitable interpretation I can think of for the populations that I think are making those choices. Um, and um, and to be sure, this is not a new problem. For example, if you're a Jew in if you're a Jew in South Africa in apartheid, it's very easy in 2022 to be like, of course you should be against the apartheid. Apartheid's awful. But once you are thinking of who you're aligned with, and you have an oppressive white regime who ultimately is not hostile to the Jewish state, and you have those who um, equate the apartheid they experienced in South Africa on a political level, I can't speak about the masses, as equating that to what they would call an apartheid uh, against the Palestinians who are anti-Israel. And you feel your own kind of security slipping in South Africa and your only place to escape to is being Israel. And these people as oppositional to your own security, how, what do you do? And so um, to some it's obvious, you still have to be a justice warrior and be anti-apartheid. To others, the only answer was be silent because we don't know what to do, we're, we're scared out of our minds. Now that's a very different situation than 2022 America. But, but if you are a Jew who still lives with a narrative that Israel can crumble at any moment without support, and you believe the evangelical supporters are the only true supporters left, you might be willing to get in bed with, um, with real haters and white, and, and white supremacists to, to secure what you believe is the only possible security for your family and for your people. And so that's not me giving them a pass at all. That's me just trying to contextualize like how Jews could get it, like how we could get it so wrong to be allied with people. Now, to be sure, they're gonna point to the far left and be like, look, you're in bed with Farrakhan and you're in bed with like, like these, you know, these other, you might've seen the head of the Presbyterian movement. He called on Martin Luther King Jr. Day. This, um, uh, this, this leader, um, he, 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 he said Israel is guilty of slavery, slavery. Now, um, there's a whole bunch of things you can critique Israel for and say Israel's guilty of that would be uh, legitimate discourse. But on Martin Luther King Jr. Day, to say to an American um, black audience that Israel is committing slavery is like so atrocious and overwhelming that it's like, well, how do I join how do I join that, that rally of thousands of people? You know what I mean? So I'm not equating his rhetoric speech with white supremacists and, and the kind of violence they also, uh, uh, you know, oftentimes are, are engaged with. But I, I'm, I, they also, like, how could you be engaged with this, with this population? So Cheryl, I, I'm, I'm, I'm curious on your, your, what you think here. Well, I, I think since I'm, I'm totally immersed other than these couple of hours that I get to do something else in the Jewish Film Festival right now. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and and so a lot of the films are um, pre-post-Holocaust films. And so from that, and I think that what I think is that a lot of the people today who are, you know, who throw their weight behind uh, someone who um, is is just totally supportive of Israel uh, at the um, at the loss of anything else is, um, are thinking back to that. They have this 
Holocaust mentality, that if only the Jews had had a place to go, you know, maybe this, you know, with this wouldn't have happened. I mean, I see a lot, you know, friends who had relatives who were survivors, that kind of thing. I mean, that, and, and so I really do think that that's, um, that might be part of it. Now that might be just part of my generation also, because our generation, in my generation, I actually have some friends whose parents were uh, survivors from, you know, the, their first or, or second generation um, uh, Holocaust survivors. So uh, I think that that might be part of it. I mean, I'm not apologizing, believe me, I'm not apologizing, but I'm, I'm just trying to put, to contextualize some of it and say that maybe this is part of the, a part of the reason, but it just, it stymies me when, when people at the, at the, just throwing away everything else and the, all the needs and everything are willing to say, well, it's just all about Israel, all about it's Israel. That's, great, that's it. Great. And so good. And so we should be clear, like, well, our Cheryl and, and Cheryl's engagement and my engagement to contextualize is in no way justifying. We're seeking to understand. We both have family members and friends who have some different um, alignments and we wish to engage the, these people. You know, and, and it's interesting, like, um, like we're not so critical of other populations that make their own security their priority. Like if there were black communities that made the like racism, like their sole issue or Muslims who made Islamophobia or like Mexicans who were like, I'm all about like immigrant rights. Like we, we're, we don't tend to be critical and say like, oh, how can they be aligned with X, Y, and Z? Like they're just a marginalized minority who's fighting for their own thing. And yet as Jews, we are uncomfortable when we see Jews who only at the expense of all other issues are willing to, to hold up Jewish security. So it's interesting to kind of note that, of course there are um, uh, among Jewish people and among every minority groups that are solely about their quote unquote people and mm -hmm. groups that are intersectionalist um, and mm -hmm. broader. Mm -hmm. But um, uh, yeah, so, and so, you know, we're, it's, we're at a very, very, um, a very interesting time. And I think that, that narrative that we might critique, also we should see the, the legitimacy of the narrative also. Here's what the narrative sounds like. And it's very easy to construct a historical narrative like this. The Jews are alone in the world. No one will fight for the Jews, but the Jews. Don't talk to me about allyship, right? You could talk, do all the allyship you want. They will not show up at the end of the day to defend the Jews when the Jews need it. The Jews will die in gas chambers. And that is one narrative of why Jews have to be like above and beyond constantly vigilant at all costs for their security. Now, the other narrative sounds like this. It's true there's a history that nobody stood up for the Jews but the Jews, but we live in a different era. We live in an era where there's tolerance and pluralism and we have allyship and we're in, we have interfaith partnerships and we're in this together. We stand for them and they'll be there for us. I really believe, I really believe if people come after us, they'll be there for us. Now, to some, that sounds incredibly naive. To others in the trenches, they believe it's real. And, and now here's a third narrative. The third narrative says, I, it's true. They won't be there for us. Yeah, they'll kind of show up at a rally. They'll be, they'll be our friends, but they're not going to put any real skin in the game. Nonetheless, we still have to do what's right, even when it's not in our interest. It's true that we're going to advocate for all these different causes that are not about Jewish security. And it's true, we're gonna to have to ally, uh, you know, ally with people who will try to hurt us. Nonetheless, like we have to do that not because it's in our interest, but because it's right. Okay, thank you. 
I was going to say there are many other one issue items that divide society. COVID, vaccination, abortion, others. And the question is, can you have a rational conversation and find a middle ground on any of these single issue matters in a world, especially during COVID where people are isolated and living in their own world. Uh, some demographic studies show that people move to, to Arizona, to Texas, to other states, and only buy in their new home or rental in a political community that they're comfortable with. Mm -hmm. So liberal Californians move to, they don't move to Prescott. Liberal Californians don't move to Austin, they move to other areas. So we're becoming more and more polarized on single issues. And that's a very disturbing trend to me. I don't know the answer, but that's the point I wanted to add. Great. Thank you, Matthew. That, that that's great. And 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 um, you know, and I and I and I would raise your ante. Uh, is, that, is that what you say? I, I don't play poker. Is that what you say? You raise your ante? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> uh, so it kind of it kind of rolled off the tongue, but I wasn't sure if it was right. Um, so I'd raise it in saying that when I used to knock on doors campaigning, and it's been twenty years since I did that, unfortunately. But when I used to knock on doors, they told us that it's not only by city or by um, neighborhood, it, it, that, that um, political uh, allegiances vary greatly by street. Literally, as you change street, um, that, that political identification changes drastically. So, um, and who do we want to ultimately be our neighbors? It's true. Like when I jog around, I jog around, the, the, when there were Biden's, Biden flags, at Biden Harris uh, uh, flags and Trump Pence flags. It was by the street. It, it, it changed. It was so interesting. It wasn't like Scottsdale is one thing. It was like it shifted. So, so you're right. And I think that like it's very hard for us as Jews to think about one it being one issue people. Like how can you how can you break down all of the complexity of your moral concerns in the world down to one issue, no matter how great that issue. Like. I know women's rights people, like abortion is everything. I know people on one side or the other of the COVID side. I know people like on various issues, on, on Israel, on other issues, but like even you feel strongly about one, like what about these other dozens of issues that are involved here? Uh, I'll go one further step. Yeah. Young people dating. When do you bring up how you feel about COVID when you're dealing with Zoom, other dating, and you self-isolate and there's an argument that says you agree not to talk politics and vaccine the first two times you talk as opposed to meeting in person, or you rule out a whole section of people you may actually be able to get along with. You know, some, and someone I know here who's in his late 60s is now dating again as, as a widow, widower, said, nah, my age is thought that's, that, that's a screen before you even, but it's a self-pet perpetuating silo of people who don't talk. Right, right. Yeah, no, that, that's absolutely right. It, it parallels some of the ethics around interviewing for a job. Like, when do you share the things that need to be shared in an interview? You may have seen the Wall Street Journal article yesterday that talked about this new phenomenon, that the person you interview on Zoom is actually a different person who you hired. Like, people are paying people to do the interview for them. 
<laughs> they're like, I'm not a good interviewer. Like you look enough like me. Will you take the interview? <laughs> you know what I mean? So, um, but like, you know, there's a thing and, and it, 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 as Jews, when do we share this or that? Or also like as a pregnant woman, when do you share that you're pregnant? I know you don't have to disclose that. And among many women's rights groups, they would say you shouldn't disclose it because there's the chance of discrimination. My, my, my wife always felt the obligation to, uh, to share it um, because she felt like it was fair. It was fair to share it. Um, but yeah, and then in dating, when do you when do you bring up the bigger things? Um, it's funny that the whole dating app world, it's accepted to lie. It's like the culture to lie. I'm sure there's been studies on this, but uh, the on dating apps, it's acceptable and expected to lie about your age. Like at date three, you'll be like, okay, how old are you really? How old are you? Oh, you? Oh, okay, me too. I'm also like eight years younger than I said. Okay, right? or like, oh, you said you're spiritual, not religious, because that's like attractive to say, but actually you're also a religious fundamentalist. That's awesome. Great. So yeah, when, when, when do you bring this stuff up or, you know, um, and so what, you know, it's, it's, it's a fascinating issue around disclosure, around disclosure and, 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 and how we share these things. And, tr and truth and truth and truth. And truth yeah. I, I, I could speak up. Um, thank you so much again. This has been just absolutely wonderful. You know, I think that the, we brought up great examples on the citations the one thing I've noticed, like you gave a great example regarding like the reform movement and the conservative movement, and all had to do with timing. These these citations that if, if again, if this was after uh, or during uh, the Shoah, I think the circ the I'm not sure the positions would have been the same based off of this notion of early Zionism, and I think the same could be said about this notion of the two state solution. Is it's not just from the um, is you know Israeli Zionist and Jewish perspective, but also. Palestinians itself, do is is the right time? Do they believe like their perspective 50 years ago to the, well, again, when you go back to even the Balfour De Declaration, even up to in the 40s with pushing with the UN, to into the 90s, their evolution of of peace, of a two-state two solution is just continuing, continuing to evolve. I think that the position of Zionism, the positions of, of, of a two-state solution versus confederation is going to continue versus over... Uh, is this the right time? And I feel like this is like the notion of the right moment identifying or versus this is not the right moment, this is not the right time. It's going to continue to an ever, I think it's going to be an ever uh, evolving topic and continue to be debated on for, for, for many years to come. Great, great. Thanks, Eric, because you're absolutely right that um, as, as we are students of Judaism and students of Israel, we're not only personally connected, we also step back, which is a good chance for me to um, 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 remind folks that we have a, a former uh, US ambassador to Israel speaking at VBM in person and virtually in a few weeks, Martin Indyke. Um, and um, who would have thought we'd be going back to Kissinger and Nixon, but we're going back to Kissinger and Nixon uh, to understand some of his perspective as someone who has been in many presidential administrations in this work and what he thinks Kissinger was getting right that we've gotten wrong in the decades since and what Kissinger got wrong as well, um, of course. But um, it, it'll be- Let me jump in. Sorry? Can I add, can I add something? Just oh, for your just own one moment, Just one moment and I'll pass yeah. it back to you. Yeah. And so I think you're exactly right, Eric, that um, this question of timing is incredibly important. And we're not only interested in what we do now, but where do we want to be in 30 years? And that issue of timing is incredibly uh, complicated in any movement work. Um, but I think it's important that we lose, we don't lose touch with either. 
where do we ethically and politically want to be? Where do we need to be as a global Jewish people? And what do we need to do now to help to get there, ultimately to get there? Yes, Rabbi Lerner. I, I just wanted to add, uh, when, when the question came up in 73, I happened at that point to be, I, I made it my business to be in the home of a, uh, of, you may remember the name, the, he was the liaison at one point uh, to a Republican administration. He was president of the Conference of Presidents. At that point, when I was there in his home, he was on the phone with the uh, State Department and also the Pentagon trying to negotiate to break up and send arms and ammunition, shells, artillery, et cetera, to Israel, who had just exhausted their supplies. It was Kissinger who deliberately held them back. That's, uh, we, we forget whether they're our friends, whether they're objective, or whether they're part of it. And I apologize for missing what was in between, please. That was my son on the phone from Israel. <laughs> oh, good. Oh, good, good. I'm glad you answered it. I'm glad you answered it. Everything is cool. Well, and look, here's another part of the phenomenon we have to wrestle with also that, and Indyke points this out, that within the White House, Nixon was an anti-Semite. Now, he's very clear Nixon yeah. was a soft anti-Semite, not a hard anti-Semite. And so, Kissinger, so Nixon's going to do things like question Kissinger's loyalty to America, because look, you're a Jew, like whose side are you really going to be on and working for this piece? But he called that soft anti-Semitism rather than hard anti-Semitism, which he says, oh, the Jews are all corrupt and, and you know, and they're all, and they shouldn't have any power. Like he made him as the first, the first Jewish secretary of state. He was, Nixon uh, open, like fully embraced him in that role. So it's a soft anti-Semitism rather than a hard one. But he explains, Kissinger explains that, that a big part of what he had to do was constantly diminish his Jewish commitment, which which, was, was, which wasn't hard for him because he had left Judaism completely as a, as a refugee, um, but also that he had to constantly diminish his commitments to Israel. And so we as American Jews, North American Jews, also sometimes consistently are in this phenomenon of, do how do I articulate my commitments in a way where I yeah. seem objective? Right. And for some, they're not worried about that. I'm going to like speak the truth as truth as a proud Jew of what I believe. And others to say, look, uh, I need to be a little more critical of Israel publicly because I need to show the street cred that I'm like honest. And and that's a real phenomenon, not only for politicians, but for Jews in Hollywood um, and for Jews in, in all circles. And so that's an interesting challenge to us of like how we understand today our standing as American Jews. Um, uh, based based upon these the, these types of allegiances, um, and Kissinger oh. and Kissinger, but Kissinger appears to have been. Uh, I I don't think it would be fair to call him, although maybe I, somebody could, a self-hating Jew. No, um, no, 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 no. I'm not saying you, but I think I, so. I, and so I think he was self-aware of his attempt to survive a very precarious role, because he himself was insecure, and Nixon was extremely insecure, of course, and so. Um, and some of us have our own insecurities around these these things today as well. So, um, okay, there's so much that hasn't been said, but we have to stop. And so I wanna say two last things about this and about looking forward. Um, I think that what we've tried to do here um, in our 40 debate series, I wanna remind us of the goal here. The goal was to say that I think predominantly the Orthodox have got it wrong in their primary discourse. 
and the liberal forms of Judaism have got it wrong in their primary form of discourse. The Orthodox say Torah and Judaism is about halacha. We, Judaism is primarily through the prism of Jewish law. And the liberal Jews primarily say Judaism is through the prism of values, tikkun olam and values. That if we, that we could list these midot, we can list tikkun olam. And, that, and I think what I'm trying to argue is that the best of Jewish ideas have existed through dialectical tensions, not through absolute halakha, not through absolute values, but rather intentions in conversation, in chavruta, in debate. And what that does is it keeps us talking. It shows how different eras debate each other, how different values and halachot debate each other. It moves us from extremes to nuances. And it moves us into a space where, yes, we might still or may not hold a commitment to halakha. We still hold commitments to values, but we experience it all in tension, peace versus peace versus truth, like Hillel that. versus Shammai, right? All these various, just to rattle off uh, just a couple of the of the 40 we've, we, we've looked at here to, together, gun reform and gun rights, Marx versus Ayn Rand, absolute truth versus compromise, heaven yeah. versus earth. Israel versus the diaspora, Spinoza versus the rabbis, right? Zealousness versus tolerance, care for the vulnerable versus education, right? Struggle versus peace, humor versus seriousness, Auschwitz as a narrative versus Sinai as a narrative. We look rationalism versus mysticism, Besh versus the Gras, pro-life versus pro-choice, learning versus action. We have our strong leanings among these tensions, but our leanings are strengthened when we give some breathing room to the opposition, and we have the intellectual and spiritual integrity to just like the Talmudists did, record the dissenting view and welcome the dissenting view into the conversation. So I hope we've done an okay job with that together. I have greatly appreciated everyone's comments throughout this. And I'm gonna, I wanna now invite us into another 40 part series that is going to start on March 15th, also at Tuesday at 10 o'clock, um, in this time zone, which at that time will be noon on the East Coast as opposed to one. Oh, no, uh, oh, no will be one as opposed to noon because we will be in Pacific time um, and, and so three hours behind. So y'all who are in Toronto or in New York or the like, um, it'll be a three hour difference. And that is going to be 40 different aspects of kindness in Jewish thought. Yes, there will still be some fire to the debates, but prim primarily we are looking at how can we live with more chesed in our lives and how can we be, in, be inspired by the multi-dimensions of living a life committed to giving and to kindness. Thank you all so much for your presence and partnership. Lots of love. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for everything. Thanks so much. Thank you so much for everything. You are incredible. And this has been a wonderful series. And thank you, thank you, thank you. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Valley Beit Midrash podcast. Remember that you can join our email list at valleybeitmidrash.org to stay up to date on new programs, learning opportunities, and more ways to stay connected. If you enjoyed learning with us today, support our work by making a donation at valleybeitmidrash.org slash donate. Join us next time as we continue to work together to build a better world. Thanks for listening.